us down to the last comic shop in five, four, three, two, one. Hey, hey, it is now time for more of the last comic shop. Nope, nope, nope. What? No, I'm on strike. What? I'm on strike. No, that was like last year. That's like a 2020 thing, not a 2023 thing. This is ridiculous. Yeah. I, I think what Jay is getting at is uh we uh we didn't we didn't read anything this week. <laughs> it's like when the shop when there's a, a terrible like uh warehouse fire or something <laughs> and the shop doesn't get the books. Really does that really happen that things like catch on fire and then people don't get books? Yeah, there was a whole big thing a couple uh, months back with Diamond and they had a big warehouse thing and there was a truck. Crash? I don't know. It was two weeks ago. It sounds like something out of Die Hard. They wanted to stop all comic books. You know what? We're not stopping comic books on the last comic shop. I'm the host with the most, Andy Larson. I'm joined by Jay Scott and Chad Smith. So did you read something? And I did. I read tons of stuff. But I'm not going to talk about it because I'm on strike too. What? You can't go on strike. I'm on strike. I don't. I. I You're management. I, You're not I, allowed to strike. I, We're the workers. Where did I become management? You're the Work. man. Damn the man. <laughs> well, we can't damn the fans. They paid good money for I don't know their iPhones or whatever they're listening on to, to basically listen to another episode of the Last Comic Show this week. So we have to deliver. And that's me putting my foot down. So, gentlemen, what would you like to do for this week's show, given we didn't read anything? Uh, go home. Damn it. Why don't you fire up the Rama 3000, Archive Rama Why don't 3000? you go pull something out of your backside? Like why don't you... Why, yes, why don't you go find <laughs> some of those interviews from... Uh, insert Comic Con name here and uh, Three Rivers Comic Con. Three Rivers Comic Con. Instead of going to the archive, Rob, like, let's go look in the fridge and see if we have any leftovers. <laughs> All right, you guys go look for some leftovers. Bring me down a turkey sandwich. I'm going down to the basement now so I can fire that thing up. So, all right, gang. So, anyways, here we go. Our first interview on today's program is from P. Craig Russell, an Eisner Award-winning author who did a lot of really great books that we have covered here on The Last Comic Shop in the past, like uh, What Disturbs You, Stephen? And we did his Norse mythology, and, and he's just done a lot of good stuff. So let's hear what P. Craig Russell had to say. Hey, hey, it's Andy Larson with Mikey Wood here at the Three Rivers Con, and we are talking with P. Craig Russell. And, sir, let me tell you, it is an honor to talk with you. To think on the last Comic Shop podcast, we have somebody that is in the Eisner Hall of Fame. <laughs> yes, such a privilege, sir, and we've been fans for a long time. So first question off the bat is, uh, do, were you a fan of comic books growing up? Did you read them growing up? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, from Harvey Comics and Donald Duck, uh, <laughs> as soon as I could learn how to read, they, they were in the house. Okay. Graduated to Archie, and then graduated to the third issue of the Fantastic Four, and wow. it was Marvel from then on. Okay. Were you a fan of the Flying Bathtub then? Yeah, uh, yeah, yes, <laughs> the Flying Bathtub. Yes. A friend of mine... His older brother had issues 3 to 14. Okay. And I started reading them there. And I don't know what I traded for it, but I took them home. (laughs) 
might have been my bicycle. I, I'm not sure. Wow, three through fourteen. So that's like first Doctor Doom, first Submariner. Yes, the Submariner. Of course, we called him the Submariner. <laughs> Wow, so Fantastic Four was your first love when it came to Marvel? Oh, yeah, that was my first exposure to it, absolutely. Okay, okay. so you started off as a Fantastic Four fan, and then I guess after several years of being a fan, you maybe decided that you wanted to do this as a career, whether in comic books or as an illustrator in general. Did you used to trace over like comic books when you were a kid to get a feel for how they, they flowed? Well, I did not do uh, a lot of, of comics or, uh, or tracing over or any of that. I, I, I drew pictures, but uh, like some of my friends who have, you know, done hundreds of pages of little mini-comics and everything before that, by, the, by my first story for Marvel Comics, I had drawn maybe two dozen comics pages. Okay. But I did a lot of single illustration, and I read everything I had every comic book that came out from DC and Marvel from 1964 until you know I started working I read everything Tower Comics Charlton uh, all of that so I was first in it and I did illustration and once it started working for Marvel under Dan Adkins the the telling of stories visually which is what can trip up a lot of aspiring artists they right. they do all these pinups uh, of the characters but you have to know how to tell a story with pictures and that just came naturally to me okay. either from movies or I, well I tell you the, you talk to anyone my age uh, they will talk about the two issues of Harvey Comics collecting the spirit stories that came out in 1965 oh, yes. those two 25 cent comics giant comics uh, and yeah, so I, I, I knew sort of all the Marvel and DC storytelling approaches to you know, but then you see Will Eisner's uh, yes. playing around with uh, with with open panels or closed panels, uh, too complex to get into here. But I mean, it was a revelation. Yeah, I mean, did those issues contain that one story about the one guy that wants to fly? Yes. Like? Oh yes. Now his name is just flown out of my head. I was thinking of him just the other day. Right. It's yeah. a wonderful story. Yes. The spirit shows up at the beginning of the book, yes. and then he doesn't even show up until the end when he's fighting a bunch of goons, and yeah. kind of like this entire story is about the guy trying to fly. Yes. Well, the one that got me was Plaster of Paris. Okay, yes. And and she is murdered in the last scene uh, in, right in front of, of the spirit. And it's all taken place on stage. And the last panel, he just pulls the curtain closed behind him. But what Eisner did was to make the picture smaller than the other pictures around. So all this white space around it and not a border around that and just did it in a gray tint. It was like all the light going out of the world. And I realized you could evoke emotion by changing, you know, the size of a picture or the space you put it in. And you weren't, you know, you know, all honor and glory to Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko and that. They weren't doing stuff like that. Right. That's what Eisner, Eisner did. Yeah, it was sad too because at the time that Eisner was doing this marvelous stuff in that Sunday flyer supplement for the spirit uh, it was comics were still looked at as a kids medium uh, in fact at some point they were actually looked at as un-American they were burning comics and everything so he was actually kind of ashamed of doing comic books at the time I think he stopped doing comics and went into the furniture business for a little well while. And, and also when the, those two issues from Harvey comics 
they were reprints of stories, you know, that he did 12, 14 years before. Right. Yeah. So let's pivot and start talking about how you got into a Marvel. I mean, you mentioned that Dan Atkins got you in. Yes, I got in. It was a crazy thing. Uh, Dan Atkins was from uh, West Virginia, right across the river from Ohio, where I grew up. He returned after uh, being in New York City. He was Wally Wood's assistant uh, and, and drawing partner, even. But he came back to Ohio. There was a mention in the local newspaper about this cartoonist living in Ohio. And I knew the name, who he was. I was too shy to go meet him. I was still in high school. But while I was in college, my dad needed a piece of artwork for his clothing store for advertising. So he went out to meet him and told him about his son who was going to art school and had 8,000 comic books in the attic. And Dan said, tell him to come out and meet me. Okay. So on maybe Christmas break, I don't know, I went out to his little studio outside of East Liverpool, Ohio, showed him my work, and he said if I would work with him for six months, he could get me into Marvel Comics because he was interested in in forming a studio in Ohio that would produce work and send it into the company, and which is what he did. He he brought in Val Merrick, Paul Galassi, and I all within six months of each other and got all three of our careers jump-started wow so i mean that's one of the great things about doing our podcast we talk to artists all the time and there always seems to be somebody either as a mentor or somebody that brought them into the business and they kind of earn their lumps that way it's just really neat yeah so dan atkins was one of yours did you have any others uh no basically that that was dan uh got me in and what was interesting, you know, Val Merrick came in like a, a couple months after I did. And we only had this discussion a few years ago. It was funny that I looked at his work and his pencils of anatomy. Uh, there, there was flesh on these bodies in a sort of frisette way. And I was like, man, I got I got my game. This guy is really good. And at the same time, he was looking at the backgrounds and, and detail that I was doing. And it was like, oh, I got to start putting details and backgrounds in my stuff. <laughs> so we sort of fed off each other, you know, looking at, at the Mutual Appreciation Society and, okay. and, and using it. Yeah, I got to do a little bit more over here. So you worked for Marvel for a little while, and eventually you started working in the independents. And one of the two books I brought up today for you to sign was an issue of Star Reach that has your story about Percival. Um, so how did you get involved with this Star Reach? One, again, one of these great independent comic books that was done by Mike Friedrich uh, with folks like Jim Starlin and Howard Chaikin and yourself. Well, I knew uh, Mike Friedrich from... Uh, my very some of my very first Marvel comics, Ant Man. He was scripting Ant Man, okay. and so he knew each other that way. And once he went independent to start what he called ground level comics, he just you know put the word out, and he asked me if I wanted to do something for it. Okay. It was as simple as that. Anything you want, you can do. And at the same time, my best friend that I knew from you know high school and lived in New York City. He shared an apartment with a whole bunch of crazy people. He'd just written a little prose adaptation of an act from the opera Parsifal and gave it to me. He said, you might want to do with something like this. I said, yeah, I'll I'll make a comic book out of this. Wow. So, I mean, that kind of started a career for you of basically 
adapting literary works into comic book form. Again, whether it was this opera or later on you got involved with the Eldrick saga, you know, that Michael Moorcock wrote. How did, how did you get involved with that particular? Well, again, Mike Friedrich had the, uh, the Elric franchise and he had Frank Bruner doing one and, and I was doing The Dreaming City. And I, I forget now, it went through several phases before it arrived at Marvel. Uh, different publishers were going to do it, even while we were working on it. But it landed at Marvel. Okay. It was as, as simple as that. Thing is, I had never read any Michael Moorcock. <laughs> because we didn't have it available at, in Wellsville, Ohio. Right. They had the uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, Robert E. Howard, all of those books. But at the local Hills department store, uh, they didn't have any uh, Michael Moorcock. So people would ask me once I was living in New York City, uh, surprised I didn't know who he Well, you would love Michael. You would love Michael Moorcock. Okay. So when they offered me The Dreaming City, that's the first time I ever read any of it. And I read it, and of course I loved it, okay. and had all my favorite stuff in it to draw. Now, one of the coolest things about your Eldrick work was it was scripted by Roy Thomas. Yes. Did you get full scripts from Roy? Did, like, how did, uh, how uh, no. We uh, Yeah, I mean, what Roy could do, like on, on Conan, just beautiful, beautiful writing. Uh, but we were still working the Marvel way. He did a synopsis okay. of breaking down the novel uh, by chapter and, you know, what was going on in it. And this was the first time, and it was sort of like training wheels for me, I had the novel itself. So, of course, I read the novel. I can't imagine, and I know this has happened, people are given a, a, a literary property and they would work from another writer's synopsis and just go from that. Oh. I went through the book, you know, line by line and matched up a lot of the dialogue in there with the picture so I knew exactly what they were saying and where you put the pauses in and all of that sort of thing. So I wasn't writing the script, but it was good training on how to start breaking down a novel into pictures. Eventually you did Elric with Michael T. Gilbert, right? Mm. Well, no, wait, well, yeah, after, so yes, right, yeah, exactly. after, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so how was working with another artist, like on a project like that? Well, that was the first time uh, we did breaking up art chores. Well, I guess you could say if someone was inking me like they were in the first days. Right. But uh, this was the first time we were working together where I would design the page and the layouts. He would pencil it and I would ink it. But then it got foggy in certain places. There was one six-page sequence he really liked that he did the layouts on and, and did some inks. And other pages I would just do all myself from start to finish. You know, it got passed back and forth. Some now, I, I would probably, on some of those pages, not even sure who did what. Right. You know. It's like something that you do nowadays with books like Norse mythology. Yeah. So, where, like, you come up with the layouts and, like, the overall artistic scheme, but then another a penciler or something comes in and actually does the... That was kind of like the blueprint for what you would do later. Right. A, a big novel has to be broken down because in, unless you're going to do a 3,000-page novel. I mean, I did uh, Neil Gaiman's American Gods. That was a 525-page novel. We had 600 pages to do it. You would think, oh, well, you have even more pages. But one of his paragraphs can have so many events in right. it. Uh, so I worked on that for three years, just breaking it down and laying out the pages for Scott Hampton, who did over 500 of them. So it's it's like an architectural blueprint. I, I put it almost like storyboards. I'm not doing tight drawing. Uh, it, once in a while, I get carried away. Uh, 
but it's to show close up, long shot, you know, all that sort of pacing. So now with the case with Elric, you know, Moorcock was still living and he was still, did, did you ever get a chance to actually meet him and get feedback from him yes. by any chance? Well, I never got any feedback, but I met him uh, at the Dallas Fantasy Fair. And then just a few years ago, we had a Zoom call together. Oh, wonderful. Yes. Yeah. So with, with someone, you know, uh, an interviewer. And that was that was fine, but most of these times, like most of the gaming collaborations, you know, he's written two original scripts for me: Sandman, mm-hmm. Fifty Ramadan, right. and uh, from Death and Venice, from The Endless. All the rest, like American Gods and, and Coraline and all that, he gives me the novel, and I sit down and take it apart and put it back together again. I've said sometimes it's like taking as. Uh, a 16-cylinder Duesenberg and taking it all <laughs> apart and reassembling it as a hot sport car. Oh, you know? boy. I was, I was always curious with, um, you know, you have a very distinct style that we, we, we talked to a little bit earlier about how it's uh, influenced by the um, Nouveau movement and, and, and things that was there. But if you look at earlier things, you know, Kill Raven and things like that, not, yeah. not so much in there. Right. Was there, was there, do you recall, was there a sort of like come to God moment where it just <laughs> did, it clicked? Was there a project of yours where it just, that suddenly was birthed out of you? Or? Uh, no, it's a more a slower evolution. Uh, with my, the very first op- thing I put an opus number on, opus one, was heavily influenced by 19th century art. And then I did Kill Raven, which was superhero, so you didn't see a lot of that in it. In the meantime, I also did the Doctor Strange, started the first 20 pages of the Doctor Strange annual, and that had a lot of that Art Nouveau uh, influence in it. I was just devouring these books, but it it develops over time, and um, so that era of Art Nouveau, that very uh, sinuous, flowing line, but then for something like the Dream Hunters, Neil's Japanese fairy tale, uh, I, I bought books and books of our, uh, Japanese architecture and costumes and design and color. So it looked, you know, had a Japanese feel to it. It, it, it depends on the story you're doing. When I did um, uh, or the Spirit story, there were all, all sorts of different art styles in that. And um, the, the Hellboy story, of course, uh, working with uh, Mike Mignola. It takes on its own flavor. Right. Well, speaking of fairy tales, uh, another of the books that I brought up for you to sign today was the Grimm's Fairy Tales, as done by Oscar Wilde, and your adaptation of such. And I, I wanted to ask you about that book because, again, I had it as a kid, and I try to treasure it, and I want to know how you got involved with that project. Well, I, when I was living in New York City, I uh, was in a bookstore, and it was there was a book, The Fairy Tales of Oscar Wilde, and I picked it up and started reading. I read The Young King, and immediately I said, I want to draw this as a comic book someday. And it was another 15 years, uh, easily until I got around to it, uh, approached by NBM, and I said, well, how about I do a book of... Uh, then it was going to be uh, a Kipling fairy tale, or Oscar Wilde, and then uh, Terry Nantier, the publisher, said, well, why not do just all Oscar Wilde? So that first volume had two stories in it. Yes. And I've done five volumes and one to go. 
So, uh, and that last one, The Fisherman and His Soul, is just, it, it's the, the best of them all. And it's 44 pages long mm. instead of being one of the shorter ones. Okay. And those were all fairy tales that were entirely original to him. Right. He made them up, yeah. And the great thing about your work, Mr. Russell, is a lot of it is still out in print, right? I mean, newer comic book fans can find it. Yeah, you can still find it. It's in print. And once you do something with Neil Gaiman, it's going to be in print for a long time, which is wonderful. <laughs> the uh, I still, in my bucket list, I have the last Oscar Wilde fairy tale to do. The next thing I'm starting on, which was, I was supposed to start on a couple months ago, but I got involved in something else, is uh, Neil's Only the End of the World again. Now, I did that 20 25 years ago did the script and layouts for Troy Nixie. It wasn't until they came out with this deluxe edition a couple uh, years ago that had the whole 48 page story and then they did a black and white section that had my layouts on one page and his black and white artwork on the other. It's the first time I realized how very many changes he made to my layouts. So I decided I wouldn't normally do this when some other artist uh, does it over my layouts and then I come in and say here's my but there were so many changes I said I, I want to do my own version and that's what I'm going to do with the final full artwork well I guess that brings up an interesting question I mean you've worked with so many artists over the years like how do you pick them oh. like, like how do you pick somebody that's going to end up working on a P. Craig Russell project like, do you know ahead of time? Well, I don't always know, but it's like, you know, your fantasy football team. Uh, you start with the artists you really like. Now, I, on, on uh, the Norse mythology book, I worked with the editor, uh, Daniel Chabon, uh, who knows a lot more artists than I do. I mean, I'm not up on who all is who, and he suggested some artists that I wouldn't have thought of that I thought were wonderful, you know? P Peter Kowalski... I did get that name right, didn't I? Uh, <laughs> a, a, a Ru David Rubin, just a number of people that were new to me that I was, and then some old hands, you know, Jerry Ordway and Jill Thompson, Galen Showman, just a, a lot of good people. So you, you work it out, and some people you ask, and, and they're too busy. Okay. You know, so I didn't get my, my, my first pick, and that's why I was happy with the ones we got that I didn't know. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Just one one quick one for me. Just, But I'm a latecomer. Actually, I should say that the, the sequence that made me fall in love with your artwork was in Ramadan, and it was the, the, the journey through the palace stairwell. And when oh, he's, yeah. When he's crawling through the little hole at the bottom. Yes. Oh, that's it. I was yeah. hooked, and I went back, and I got all of the rest of the stuff. I mean, I had seen it before. But, but anyway, do you have a, a, a dream project that if you could, you would put everything away for and just just move forward well, with? Well, I've done that. Okay. My Ring of the Nibelung, which I waited 23 years to do, uh, and then it took me another five years <laughs> to finish it. Uh, and that was over 3,300 individual drawings. And the idea of doing that now, I just, you know, <laughs> no... Uh, even, you know, American Gods that I just uh, did script and layouts took me three years to do because it was just so dense. Uh, so I have a bucket list, but, you know, this 48-page thing I'm doing, looking forward to, it's about as big as I think I want to do. And I'm doing a lot more individual illustration now than I have in years, and I just spent the last 16 months doing nothing but color work on individual images for this book we're coming out with it's called uh, anniversary 50 years in color so it collects all of 
virtually all of my color work and I created a lot of new stuff for it too. Like the 18 covers I did for Norse mythology were all colored by Laverne Kinzierski and I started doing coloring the originals myself and in the process redrew several of them or added details and strengthened parts I thought were weak and then I added six completely new paintings that go into the cycle of 24 paintings of uh, that I call the Norse Saga. And that's the latest finished piece I've done. This is the Opus 81. Don't know if I'll make it to 100 or not, but that's always <laughs> been my plan. Well, we hope that you continue to draw for a really, really long time. Thank you so much for sitting down with myself and Mikey Wood. Boy, we really love your work. And just continue doing what you're doing, sir. And, and we're back. That was a great interview from uh, Pete Craig Russell. Uh, you, you got anything else? <laughs> yeah, we got a commercial break. We got to take some commercials. So here are some other great comic book people that make comic books, and they gave us promos. We'll be right back after these commercial breaks. Greetings, ghouls and boils. I'm the Ghoul Master, a loving homage to horror anthology narrators of yesteryear. Wait, I'm an homage? Why didn't anybody tell me? You'll hear from my agent about this. But first, let's get to the heart of the matter. I'm here to tell you about the new horror anthology, Memoirs of the Morbid, on Kickstarter in time for Halloween. Memoirs of the Morbid is a black and white homage to classic horror comics from the 40s and 50s, containing five self-contained stories by some of the best indie comic creators out there. There's that word again. I better not find out homage is an insult. Anyways, Memoirs of the Morbid is completely done and ready to go to the printer. So don't make a grave mistake by missing it. Have you checked out QuadMProductions.com lately? QuadMProductions.com is your direct access hookup to order the Enigma comic book series and download the Quad M Show podcast. Check the appearances page for upcoming events and contact us with any questions or comments. Don't be the only lonely soul who's missing out on all the fun. Visit us today at QuadMProductions.com. That's QuadMProductions.com. We're back. Uh, what other interviews you got? Because I got the star olives. I haven't read anything yet. <laughs> Wait a sec. Hold on. You have a jar of olives? That reminds me of another fella. His name is Pat Olive. Yeah, because I, I, I mispronounced his name during the interview, but then Chad remembered that his name sounds like olives. So not only will you hear that part, but you'll also hear about his wonderful book, Edge World. Very big fans of Edge World. So let's listen to that interview. Three Rivers Con. All of them. All right, we're back here at the last comic shop at Three Rivers Con, and we're talking with Pat Olaf. Thank you so much for talking with us again this year. Olaf. Like Olaf. Oh, that's true. It is like Olaf. Like, yeah, you said that, yeah, last year. Ron, Ron Friend says it's like it's like the 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 green olive, but with an F. <laughs> <laughs> any case for last comic shop fans you may or may not remember the fact that last year we talked with pat yep. uh, and we talked a lot about like spider girl and uh you know what untold untold tales of spider-man yeah yep. 
So, but this year we want to talk more about like his creator-owned projects, just making sure that all of our last comic shop fans know about them. So, I know there's uh, the wonderful Edge World out there. So, uh, Pat, do you want to talk a little bit about that? I'd love to. Um, it's a project that uh, I've been working on with uh, Chuck Austin. He's the writer. We've got the first uh, first five issue arc came out on Comicsology Originals. Uh, online, uh, and then a trade was put out by Dark Horse. Uh, so you're actually gonna have a physical copy of the book. Our second arc just completed uh, on, at Comixology. So a, sec a trade for the second arc will be coming out at some point. I don't have dates on that quite yet. But it's been a great experience. Um, like I said, my first real creator-owned property. Chuck and I took a long time to develop it. It was just something we were kind of doing on our own. I contacted uh, Chuck who I worked with years ago on a project for Marvel called The Call. Oh, which, yes. yes. Oh, police. don't pretend Don't pretend you know I, what that I is. I have some of those issues. You do out of not. You do not. So, um, There's a sexy lady cop in there. <laughs> oh, my God. So you're the guy that bought them. There you go. There you go. Yeah, yeah. So, but we got along very well. Toronto wanted to work together over the years and never were able to, to find a project that fit. And um, so we just would pitch things. And some people wouldn't say, no, we're not interested. Uh, then he went on to, you know, he was had a career in animation, and I, you know, kept doing comic book work. And then I've seen a lot of guys, you know, doing the creator own their creator own properties, and it just sounded really uh, exciting. So I reached out to Chuck and I said, um, "Hey, would you want to try a creator own property?" And he said, "Sure." So we start tossing around some ideas. He said, "You know, I have this idea." Uh, just kind of the basics of an idea uh, of the sci-fi western. And, okay. Um, I said, I love that genre. We talked about Firefly and that kind of thing. And I said, yeah, that sounds great. So he sent me uh, some ideas. I started doing sketches, developing characters, developing the visuals of the world, that kind of thing. And um, it just started kind of form on its own. We, we were doing other things, but he would send me something, then I would send him something. Oh, it looks great, back and forth. So it developed kind of organically. Oh, cool. So then once we kind of had something, we said, okay, this could be something. Uh, I said, so it should be more than just you and I, you know, saying, hey, this is cool, patting each other on the back, let's try to get this out in the world. He knew Chip Moser from Comixology. Okay. And they had the Comixology Originals imprint. Right. He um, pitched it to them. They loved the idea. It's a church, so we like to do it. There you go. Now, I'm curious, with Comixology, were you working traditionally on you know, paper or Bristol board, or were you doing digital work? Or? At, that point, I, at that point, almost all my work... Well, I should uh, back up for a second. So when I started Edgeworld, it was kind of a combination of traditional and digital. I had, okay. I had wanted to move into a more digital production uh, mode, I guess, um, just because it was... Uh, everybody I talked to that worked digitally said it was faster. And I've always liked to ink my own work, but I've never been fast enough to do that. So traditionally, um, so I started experimenting with uh, 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 digital brushes and, and uh, Manga Studio and that kind of thing, which is now I guess Clip Studio. Um, so I started off kind of a combination, and then in about two or three issues in, I just switched all to digital. Okay. So the rest of the production for the rest of that first arc and all of the second arc is all digital. Oh, nice. So yeah. You think you're going to be digital moving forward, or? I think so. I think just because it's 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 a it's a decision that every artist has to make in terms of producing the work, right. but also then you don't have original artwork to sell. That's true. So, so I try to to be conscious of that, um, but at the same time, 
I know that if I could do more work more quickly, um, I can make more money that way. But also, it's easier, I'm finding, it's easier to get projects if I'm doing both jobs. Okay. Right? So sometimes you, you know, sometimes I'll have an anchor. I've been very fortunate to work with a ton of great anchors, obviously, over the course of my career. Uh, but there have been jobs where they said, hey, can you ink it yourself? Or they, it, it's more self-contained. And when I did um, Rough Riders for Aftershock, okay. I talked to Mike Martz, and we talked about inkers, and I said, well, I, you know, could I ink it myself? And then he said, actually, we would prefer that because there, it's, it's easier for them to, to manage in a way because it's just me. So if right. there's changes or whatever in the Your artwork. And- exactly right. So then they can, uh, uh, they, you know, they say, hey, you know, you, you messed this up. It's easier for you to just change because it's just you. Um, so, so I think moving forward, I would probably, depending on the project, I would probably do mostly digital work. Okay. I was curious whether or not you still do the like preliminary sketches on, uh, you know, board or anything. Or not you just, anymore. No, it's, you just all yeah, digital. Yeah. Occasionally, on a complicated layout, on the side of my script, I'll make a little thumbnail with a, you know, a pencil. I can grab a pencil and draw a little thumbnail just so I can. If I'm having trouble figuring out how it's supposed to work. Okay. But mainly, I just go right, you know, right onto the iPad. Well, the other question I had is, uh, you mentioned that originally uh, Edgeworld was supposed to be more episodic in nature. You kind of mentioned that it was kind of like a, right, right. a play on Gunsmoke and, and like, you know, story of the week or things like that. But yeah. now that it's going to be released in trades, it's more like you're, you're writing for the trades. Now, was there a major difference in the narrative you wanted to tell after that or um not in the overall storyline the overall point a to point b that chuck and i had in mind remained the same but how to get there has changed a little bit just in terms of when you are doing something that is so self-contained in an episodic format you can you can see the kind of the larger story that you're trying to get to but the focus of it tends to be you really have to get the one and done kind of thing um now with the arcs we're now looking at five issue arcs self-contained five issue arcs it gives you a little bit room a little bit more room to play around with uh, how quickly or not quickly you get to certain story points oh okay Um, so it, it has changed kind of how the approach goes to the, some of these stories, but the overall arc of where each character and where the overall story is going to end up remains the same. Okay. So we can trust there's a long-term plan for Edgeworld. There, yeah. Oh, yeah. We would love to keep. Yeah, we would love to keep doing Edgeworld for as long as we can, as long as we can find some audience somewhere to do it. So. Oh. Yeah. And speaking of that, I mean, there has been a little bit of a shakeup with Comicsology in the right. last couple of months. Uh, any concerns about that? You know, just being able to finish the story of Edgeworld. I mean, I guess these are creator-owned projects, right. so like you can you can go elsewhere. Right. Right. So yeah, I mean, um, it has been kind of up and down. I'm not really sure to know what to, to know what to make of it at the moment. They're still there. They're still interested in Edgeworld. I know they've had some layoffs and, and it's been a little chaotic. Um, I'm on the kind of the outside of that more. I don't know the inner workings of all of that. Um, but um, as it stands right now, they're still there. The uh, We have a new editor and they're still interested in Edgeworld product and more stories so we're just going to kind of ride this out as long as we can awesome yeah it was a great service so here's to hoping it uh everything smooths out yeah yeah absolutely absolutely yeah they want more and we want to do more that seems like we should be able to figure out how to do that at some point do you you have like how how many story arcs do you feel like you have planned at this point well i think chuck would probably have a better idea the uh, as far as the specific number but um i think it's one of those things where we know where the story will end 
and we can get there as quickly or as as long as it takes. Okay. I think, I think it's one of the, there's so much. The great thing about the project has been building the world of Edgeworld. Okay. I mean, has building not only the um, the inhabitants of the world Pala, um, but also uh, the United Authority, the the, the 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 larger military complex. There's so many levels to what we've kind of developed that if we wanted to run for this for a long time, we could do it. Okay. So, well, as an artist, is there a particular character that you've now fallen in love with that you're like, I love to draw this person? Or? Well, yeah, there's, uh, well, Killian Jess is the main character. He's the magistrate. Uh, and um, I love drawing him. I mean, he's just, you know, this, you know the, 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 the trench coat. And it's, the nice thing about it is there are a lot of Western, like, little, almost stereotypical tropes you can play with in right. terms of his look. But at the same time, he's got such a backstory that you know I know obviously because we've developed it that you, you can kind of come you can kind of play with his expressions more. You can he's such a, a a deep a deeper character that because I know his backstory that it allows me to play with that visually in interactions that he has with other characters that may not be specific to his his overall arc. But I know what his I know what he. I, Chuck and I know what he's thinking in that moment. Right. So it allows you to play with that kind of stuff. It's so. the old Wolverine where he's been around and oh, seen yeah, some absolutely. things. Exactly. And all those oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you, we can kind of drop those in as we go. But That's then awesome. um, another character called Chila, which is kind of his adopted daughter. She's been, she's super fun. You know, very kind of headstrong young girl character. Um, she's got her own arc that that will develop and reveal as time goes by. Uh, she's, I, I love drawing her. The, the first issue cover that I did, I used my daughter as kind of a model for her, so that was kind of fun. They're, they're all a lot of fun, but those two are the, are the core of what we're doing, and so they're the most fun to draw. We also like to ask about process in terms of you and Chuck, and does yeah. he get you full scripts, or are you, is it more like a Marvel method, or what's so? We end up talking about the story a lot, and so he does get me a full script. But at that point, I'm aware enough of what's what's going on that nothing really catches me by surprise necessarily. And he's and Chuck's great because um, I get the full script, but he under you know. But then we have another conversation, and if things need to be changed, he's always open to it, and I have my suggestions. So it's it's kind of like it's written as a script, but it's approached as a Marvel plot. Right. So, that's well, that's weird. wonderful because yeah, yeah, it seems work. like a truly collaborative project. It is. Which is, yeah, absolutely. You know, we sometimes we talk like some people will say like, "Oh, this is my favorite writer" or "This is my favorite artist." Right, right. But sometimes they don't mention like, "This is my favorite writer artist team." Right. And so right, like, right, 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 it right. seems like this is like one of the an opportunity for a yeah. lot of fans out there to pick up a true comic that's a true artist writer team. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we both like. Chuck had the, the, the original kernel of the idea that kind of sparked all this. Um, but he and I spent a lot of time developing it together. So, yeah, absolutely correct. Well, one of the other things that always happens with these kind of indie uh, creator-owned projects is the potentiality for, uh, you know, <laughs> development later on. Sure, an sure. Edgeworld TV show. Oh, right, right, right. Uh, I guess if you had, is there anybody uh, in particular that you might want to play one of these parts or you think of oh. when you draw? <laughs> You know, we had, yeah, yeah, yeah. well, we had um, nobody, nobody specifically that like in a live action. We had talked about there was some possibilities of an animated series for a while. Then, so we had talked about different voices that we would like for Killian Jess. I always thought Tom Hardy would be great as a voice for Killian. Oh wow! Um, 
Um, so I mean, <laughs> my daughter. If my daughter hears this, she would love to play Chila. She's, she's probably, uh, so, yeah, she is definitely ready. So that would be great. So so yeah. So we would have to see. All right. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with us, Pat, on Always the last comic shop and talking about Edge World. Again, where can they find this terrific project? So Comicsology Originals. You go to the Comicsology website. Comicsology Originals. You'll find it. It's an online comic. Um, uh, the individual issues are online and then Dark Horse puts them out as a trade um, which you can find at any comic book shop okay and the, and the second trade will be coming out soon yeah I don't have a date but yeah the, because the first issue arc is just kind of the second issue arc as the second arc sorry is just wrapped the second trade should be coming out but I don't have a date on that yet but okay. then again that'll be put out by Dark Horse you can find it in the comic shops uh, in your area very cool we highly recommend that you do thank you thank so you much guys. for talking to us on the last comic shop Pat guys it was great as always thank you very much alright take care alright that was very enlightening and now I'm strangely hungry for something with olives on it pizza <laughs> I don't know. I can make you a Bloody Mary. You, you want go. one of those? Go martinis for a liquid this. lunch. Martinis. Yes, there we go. I'll have a liquid lunch. Uh, no. Real quickly, J.A., how do you make a perfect Vespa martini, by the way? Like, you are our martini guru, and you've actually made them. How do you make one? It's not actually a Vespa. It's a Vesper. Well, I'll Vespa, call it. The, you're thinking Vespa, the, the little motorcycle. All right. Fair away. enough. But a Vesper martini. Yes. So, uh, three ounces of gin. One ounce of vodka, a half ounce of Kirlele, uh, but you can s substitute any dry vermouth for that, and then a lemon peel. You combine the gin, vodka, and Kirlele in in a glass, shaken, pour it into the martini, and then put in the lemon peel. Can we get that Foley one more time? That was great. It's like I'm almost there. It's like I'm in a James Bond movie right now. Ooh. There you go. And you know when you need a martini like that? When you're going out to fight some monsters. <laughs> That's so, true. Does it? I don't know. <laughs> we just need to cue this up. <laughs> All right. So here is Chad and our good friend Mikey Wood, who you've heard on in past episodes of The Last Comic Shop, talking with Michael T. Gilbert, Mr. Monster. Hi, this is Chad and Mikey Wood from The Last Comic Shop, and we are here interviewing Michael T. Gilbert at the Three Rivers Comic Con. Michael, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So, okay, so as is the nature with our show, the first place we usually start with is the very beginning. What was your first experience with comics? Uh, either was it childhood or college or, or anything to that effect? Just uh, as a fan, were you a fan to begin with? Yeah, well, the first time that I ever uh, saw a comic book... I was at my grandmother's house. I was probably about six or seven years old, and uh, they were trying to get me to to read books. You know, and I didn't want to read the books, and and they finally were desperate. Would you try reading this comic book? My grandmother did some volunteer work at the uh, in Montefiore Hospital in New York, in New York, in the Bronx, and they we took a few back here, and I, you know. I wasn't that crazy about trying it, but she said, if you do this, we'll, you know, give you some candy or something like that. So I, I read it. It was a Jimmy Olsen comic. The, the day there was no Jimmy Olsen. It was from about 1957, 58, thereabouts. And I fell in love with it. I, I was just, you know, she, I, I think she's always regretted 
that because I was bugging her from then on for more comic books, more comic books, more comic books. Now it's 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 really funny how uh, how often people know the exact issue that that dragged it. I mean, sometimes they don't, but, but for the most part, people know that exact issue that pulled them in. Now, now, did you later on in life? Do you have a copy of that? And do you, yeah, do you, I don't okay. have that copy that yeah. I have, but I do have you a copy it. of it. Yeah, because yeah, it mm-hmm. means something to you. So, so that was your introduction to it. Now, at what point did you realize that that's something that you were interested in in doing? In, in drawing or creating? Well, I mean, you know, as a kid, you know, you want to copy Superman. And I've had, I have a few drawings that I did when I was maybe, you know, eight years old or something like that. Uh, yeah. Superman uh, with a, a lead boot kicking kryptonite away. Uh, uh, very crude, but it, it, it's fun to see it. And I had a picture of Batman that I did with a bee on his chest. I didn't figure out that it was a, actually a bat. The old Halloween costume. Right? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 That, that was probably the second character I really got into was Batman because, you know, again, in the late 50s and... Uh, uh, I found it very kind of a little slightly spooky and neat, and I, I really like the characters and such. Well, I was just going to ask. Uh, so, what led to you breaking into comics? Was it always a, a dream to do that sort of thing, or were you into advertising? Right? Yeah, I, I always wanted to break into comics. Um, went to uh, college, four years, graduated, and uh, and um, decided I was that was back in 1973. And I was trying to get uh, a job at DC and Marvel, and I couldn't get arrested, of course. You know, <laughs> I, was, uh, I was about you know, 22 at that point, and managed to get a job at NBC News uh, doing um, graphics for their six o'clock news. It was just a part-time job, a few days a week, but uh, it was very prestigious, and I was really thrilled to have it. Living in New York, right, seeing your work on screen, all uh, the time. yeah, jeez. Yeah, of course, they always had the. Uh, the deadlines. If you had, you know, if you make sure you get it on there in time, or else they're going to big blank screen behind the uh, the newscaster. That's right, the so, news waits for no man. Right, especially so, this guy. So now, now you, you mentioned uh, being in New York City around that time, and we had talked to Howard Bender a little earlier, and he said he was around seventy three is when he graduated, and he did the same thing, went from office to office. Yeah. So, so New York City, as in like the Marvel comics, where every single superhero lives within New York City. It sounds like New York City was the center for all of this. All the publishers were located there, and all of you guys kind of swam in and out of these offices. So what? where was the moment where you actually, were you given a first job by someone? Were you discovered by someone, or did you just kind of move forward with yourself? Or Well, the first, the, my first comic stories that were published uh, were self-published. I was, uh, went to State University, University of New York at New Paltz, upstate New York, and I put together uh, New Paltz Comics. Uh, was sort of my version of underground comics with me and a, a number of other people, and uh, you know I had somehow I wound up with six hundred dollars in student loans that I was able to buy the issue, and get it in print, and I was you know knocking on doors at the university, you know, oh, trying wow. to sell my fifty cent comic book. That, that I lost interest in self publishing pretty quickly at that point. <laughs> I'll have to try to track one of those down. <laughs> I was going to say though, I, your name is synonymous though with independent characters and uh, mm-hmm. things like Mr. Monster. Yeah. Now, I told you earlier. I, unfortunately, I had missed the boat on this. Can you tell me about Mr. Monster? Where it came from? I always I'd seen the character around. I'd seen some of the action figures from mm-hmm. uh, like Fresh. Uh, is it Fresh Monkey Fiction or? Yeah. But where did you? get the inspiration to, to run with that character what what inspired mr. monster mr. monster was inspired by mr. monster when I was at a comic convention in 1971 in New York I saw 
a coverless comic with the character Mr. Monster from which you know it had no indicia so I didn't know where it was from or when turns out it was from 1946 1947 uh, it was a Canadian superhero and it only lasted that one story oh wow it had been a character called Doc Stern and then just before it went out of business the company went out of business he said Doc Stern as Mr. Monster uh, we have a collection here of all those Doc Stearns and Mr. Monster books that were Fred Kelly uh, was the uh, the writer artist on that series well anyway that was 1971 and I always thought wow this would be such a great character to revive I mean I would love to do it well in uh, 1982 I started working with Craig Russell on the Elric uh, comic book series adapting their books and at one point uh, my company Pacific Comics was going to be doing an anthology comic uh, called Vanguard Illustrated and I had a little time between the first series of Elric and the second series and they asked me if I wanted to come up with something for the book and so I went through my comic collection to see if there's anything that would inspire me I saw the comic and I said I would like to reinvent this character for the 80s you know bulk him up more change the costume change the name a little bit and go on there um, and uh, I did. Uh, that company died shortly after, but the, uh, the story got picked up by Eclipse Comics, which was a new independent comics, and I started doing a whole series of, uh, of Mr. Monster comics for them. That's awesome. Yeah, there's so so much talent came out of Pacific Comics. Yeah, yeah. Uh, were, that's what, Dave Stevens and the Rocketeer? Yeah, they had some terrific stuff. Um, uh, lots of Bruce Jones, Twisted Tales, and things like that. But And so I... I'm imagining this is part of that 80s independent boom. How was Mr. Monster received at the time? Uh, people liked him a lot, and we uh, and a lot of the creators really liked him because um, very quickly I got a I got Dave Stevens to agree to do a cover for me. Awesome. Uh, I worked on a story with Alan Moore that he wrote and I illustrated. That's incredible. Yeah, so we had some some wonderful people I was working with, and um, you know it was it was well received. It, it was really liked. There you go, and the character's still around today, still yeah. getting action figures. Yeah. So. And it was, it was kind of neat because when I was doing Mr. Monster, I wanted it to be a real retro character, which is to say uh, I was coming up with stories like three stories per issue, like they did in the 50s, and uh, EC-inspired, Will Eisner-inspired, Harvey Kurtzman-inspired, and, you know, like the early mad comic books and such. So Those are great spots to get inspiration from. Mm-hmm. So the, 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 the monster hunter um, uh, archetype is, is, is very popular. And, and after Mr. Monster, it seemed to be there, there was one every every 10 minutes and, and, and like Hellboy being a recognizable. Yeah. Was there ever any talk, just out of curiosity, of doing a crossover of, of those characters? or? Um, I proposed uh, a Hellboy, uh, Mr. Monster crossover back in 90, 80, 96, but uh, uh, Mike wasn't that interested, oh, so really? we didn't go anywhere. But. That's a shame. I would I would love to see that. That's fabulous. And mm-hmm. um, so so now you know just not to keep you uh, too long. Uh, what is in the pipe for you? I know I know you're doing uh, some wonderful restoration of Golden Age comics. That we he's selling right now. Tops right here. Um, is that is that something you're doing more of also? And- well, right now, what I'm my big project right now in my uh, semi retirement <laughs> yeah. is uh, I've been going through a back all through all the Mr. Monster stories and restoring them. I want to do a series of Mr. Monster, you know, the Mr. Monster library. And uh, I have some stories that were done. We couldn't afford color. It was in black and white. 
So I'm coloring them and getting them colored. Um, there are some stories that uh, there were some editorial fingers on it that I didn't like. I've gone back and I've rewritten it and redrawn some of the things. A couple of instances, I uh, wasn't completely happy with the coloring, so I've recolored it. So just trying to make it, you know, a real state of the art with, you know, because we worked with uh, Mr. Monster, we've had any number of publishers that I want to bring them all into one roof. We have all these different styles and I work with interesting artists like Keith Giffen and uh, Bernie Wrightson and you know, all sorts of stuff here. So that's that's my project right now. I'm glad that you maintained the rights to it. And yeah, me too. And you can do with it what, what you want, like, and, and that's mm-hmm. wonderful. I think that's going to do it for us. I see your lunch is here. Yes, so it is. <laughs> we very much so appreciate your time. Uh, thanks for the, the wonderful comics. I just picked up my first Mr. Monster trade here. I can't wait to dig in. Mm-hmm. And uh, most likely I'll be back and come back to future shows for the rest. Terrific. Okay, and now it is time for a recommendation. So, gentlemen, what are you recommending? Oh. Well, my recommendation goes along with the summertime reading. And I can tell you, that whether or not you like comic books uh, and you're just happening to be listening to this podcast because somebody in your carpool is making you listen, I'm sure you like comic strips, whether it's Garfield or Farside or Calvin and Hobbes or Peanuts. I'm sure there's some comic strip that you love. And I have fallen in love with many over the last couple of years since starting this podcast. Some great ones that I can recommend that if you've never checked out include Little Abner. I mean, that was one of the biggest comic books of all time. And now like nobody knows about that one. Uh, or uh, Secret Agent X-9, written by Dashiell Hammett, who created Sam Spade, plus art by uh, Alex Raymond, who did the Flash Gordon strips. Really a big fan of. And also my favorite one, Captain Easy. Don't even bother looking it up. Just buy the book. It was one of the first adventure comic books ever. Captain Easy. Great stuff. So go pick up some comic strips. You can find them cheap mostly at, at your libraries. Like in the, like, they don't even want them anymore. Chad? We were being a little bit flip earlier, but I can't express how thankful I am to the fine folks at Three Rivers Con for having us yet again this year. And my recommendation is just to get out to those comic cons. I had such a wonderful time this year meeting people like P. Craig Russell and Michael T. Gilbert, who did a super awesome sketch uh, in my Mr. Monster book. And Pat Olive, it's great catching up with him and learning about Edge World and Ron Friends, who we didn't get to interview, but I want to shout out Ron Friends, uh, who's at Three Rivers Con. And, and Wayne Foucher. And Wayne Foucher had so many great stories. And then Russ Braun, check out our show with Russ Braun. Uh, but get out there uh, to a con near you and so many people that work in the comic book business are just good people. You know, you don't have to record interviews to appreciate the stories from folks. Uh, those people that are out there every year uh, making the rounds, meeting the fans, giving back. And so that that's my recommendation is just go to a con, uh, appreciate what these fine folks have to offer, what they're willing to give for uh, for those comic fans out there. Yeah, I would second that, too. And it doesn't have to be, you know, the big one. You can't everyone would love to be able to go to San Diego Comic-Con or uh, New York Comic Con, but even these smaller ones, sometimes you get better access to the writers and the artists. Okay, you're not going to get the the big Hollywood types, but those are the people that are sort of benefiting from the people in the trenches. Meet the people in the trenches. They're the ones who have put the, some of these stories together that then turn into giant Hollywood movies. 
and if you go to say Hershey Comic Con or Three River Comic Con or some of these smaller shows, you get the chance to actually talk to them and, and sit down and, and have a conversation and find out what makes them tick, where they got those great ideas from. I would uh, wholeheartedly recommend that you check out a show near you. You'd be surprised what you can find. And uh, we don't. We do have a comic book finder. We don't have a comic con finder. I wonder if there's a an angle in there. There you go. Well, we're always looking for angles at the last comic shop. And uh, somehow, even during this week of a strike, I got these guys to do a show. You see how great I am as a host? Any case, and you can listen to me be an awesome host with these two gentlemen every single week by going out to www.lastcomicshoppodcast.com. And I promise that every single week we're going to be giving you a new show, whether it is a comic book review or some awesome interviews that we may have recorded in the past with some awesome folks that make comics. You can always get that comic book stuff at the Last Comic Shop podcast. Yeah, find us on the socials at Last Comic Shop. Find the website www.lastcomicshoppodcast.com where you can get things like merch. And what kind of merch do we have this week, J.A.? Um, tote bags. Tote We're bags. talking about, yes, you want some tote bags. I got bags. my tote bags. I got my tote bags. <laughs> have you ever carried a tote in one of these bags? I don't, I, I, I've never had a tote. Oh, i got to have a tote. I've, where would you go and get a tote to put in these bags? To tote. Something means to carry something. Is it like a totem so a pole? Bag. Is it like a t- yeah, exactly. No, no, to tote something means to carry it. So I don't a tote believe bag you. is a bag that you carry. No, it's fine. I was just always, I was trying to find a tote store. So a tote bag is an adverb. Tote bag. <laughs> That's where you put all your stuff. Uh, stuff. You are looking. You are looking to tote. You want? I want a tote bag so that I can tote around totes. <laughs> totes are not nouns, sir. Toast. <laughs> Tote toast. We get all crummy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look at you. Any case, that's all the time we have for last comic shop this week. Stay tuned for more episodes in future. Until then, I was I was the host with the most, Andy Larson. I was joined by Chad Smith and J.A. Scott, and we hope that you stay safe, stay conning. That's right. It's a word I came up with it a long time ago, and it still means nothing. And until next week, remember that the only time a car turns into something else is when it turns into a driveway. (laughs) These are terrible. Yes, 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 they are. They're all terrible. Hey, it's Mikey Wood, frequent Last Comic Shop guest and collector. And as a collector, I'm always in need of boards, bags, long boxes, and more to house all those comics. That's why I use promo code LCSPOD to get 10% off my orders at bcwsupplies.com. Not only does it get me a discount on BCW's already low prices, but I know using LCSPOD at checkout is another way I can show my support to the Last Comic Shop podcast and their continuing mission to bring fans together under that big comic book tent. So if you're in need of comic book supplies, head out to bcwsupplies.com and use promo code LCSPOD today. That's LCSPOD.
Shop was a 2023 Black Anders production.